We're going to read this morning from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through, I think it's 21. Yes, 13 to 21. So I will begin reading at verse 13 in chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the word of the Lord, everybody. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thrilled to wrap up and finish with you this morning. First um, John, we've been going through it for the last, oh, a few months or so, and um, been a great book for me. I've really enjoyed studying it with you guys and, and preaching through it. And just a quick reminder, remember it was a letter, a letter written to the, a church who had experienced a church split, really, over false teaching about Jesus. It's the context of this letter. They had people actually leave their church claiming to be Christians, still claiming Christ, and yet teaching false things about Jesus. It was written by John to encourage the children of God, remember he calls us them little children multiple times in this letter, to encourage them, to, to, to challenge them, those who remained in the body, to build them up in faith and in life. So we called our series Love and Light for Life. I've, as I said, I've been challenged by this book, enjoyed this little book, and I hope you have as well. We've been challenged by John to see our faith as grounded in fellowship with God can be experienced, he even describes it, as a complete joy, an absolute complete joy, a real knowing that you know Jesus, a, a, a real objective set of truths even about his identity and his sacrifice, which, which must translate, John's been saying, into an actual subjective experience even of knowing him, uh, uh, of being close to him of abiding in him is the words John uses. A true exchange of love 
and life with you and Jesus and truth and words and emotions with Jesus. And he's given us, do you remember, three tests throughout this book. He's hit them and gone back to them over and over again. These three tests by which we can know we know God. Right belief was the first one. Do you have these objective truths internalized and made your own? That's first and foremost. The second one was right obedience. Do you walk in light, John says in this book, as Jesus walked? Keep his commandments, keep his word. The third one was right love. Do you love others? Love the fellow brothers and sisters. Live in light, John says, Love because he first loved us. And that theme verse, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And if you see these three tests as being worked out in your life, not perfectly, of course, but a desire for those even, you can have certainty you know Jesus. How many times have you thought in your life this? When you're thinking about important matters, well, I hope so. I hope so. I, I hope it happens. I hope things calm down in our nation. I, I hope this violence stops. I hope things don't completely fall apart. I hope that we can, I hope I can keep my job. I hope this irritability passes. I've been saying that this week. I hope Jesus returns. As we conclude the study of 1 John, we will find that John finishes the letter as he started with a pastoral heart of encouraging us of certainties, certainties of our faith. Christianity is not an I hope so faith. It's an I know so faith. That's what John gets at here. It's not I hope so, it's I know so. And you can know so. That's how he wraps up this letter. That's what 1 John's been all about. You know, he says in this book 22 times that you can know it. That I know, you know. He says it 22 times. With everything going on in our world, we need to know this morning, I need to know this morning, some things that I can be certain of. That you can be certain of. Don't you feel that? Don't you sense that? Like, just give me something that's solid. That I can bank on. Put my feet on. Rest upon. Something I know. That's what we're doing this morning. We're going to look at three certainties this morning. They're in your outline. Hopefully you've got one. Hopefully you've got it open, your Bible as well. Three certainties for the child of God to find hope and comfort for our souls this morning. Here's our first certainty. The child of God can have certainty of eternal life. The child of God can have certainty of eternal life. Listen to verse 13 again with me or follow along. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, there's that certainty, that you have eternal life. He says, I, I write to you so you can know. You know, according to John, to have the writings alone, he says, I write to you. According to John, to have the writings alone, that should be enough for us to gain certainty. That's how important the Word of God is. That's, that's why, as you think, as Christians, they've always been on the forefront of literacy. Do you know that? All throughout history, Christians have been on the forefront of literacy. Why would that be? Because we're a people of the Word. It's the way God has chosen to communicate through written Word. And so is reading important? Yeah. 
That's why we hand out so many books at Bethany Church and try to get us to be a reading, a reading culture in our church because we are people of the word. And John says, you can know. I write this so you can know. It matters. We know what the witness of the Holy Spirit, as John has said, testifying to these truths of the writings. We can have certainty about all kinds of things in life, about your future, about your now, about your past, about where we're going in the written word. It's not just an I hope so, or I think so, or I'm really betting on this happening, but certain knowledge, certainty, John is saying. Well, of what here? Eternal life. Eternal life. That you possess eternal life even now. It's not something that's coming. It's not something you hope will happen. If you're in Christ, you possess it now. That's why John can say it's certain. Well, when he says eternal life, it's really a shorthand way of saying what you have now as a believer. It's a shorthand way of like saying all that Christ has done, all that Christ has accomplished is yours right now. But not everyone's. Not everyone's. For only those who believe, he says. It's conditioned upon a real relationship with Jesus, real belief, real in-depth knowing, as he's been talking about in this letter. So how, how can John be so certain? Think about that. How can John be so certain to pass this on in a letter that's going to be written thousands of years later? I mean, he's talking about so much about obedience and loving others, and John's not here right now. He's never been to Canby. He's never even been to America. He, he, he passed away thousands, thousands of years ago. How can he pass on to us a letter and say something 2,000 years later that says, I'm so certain when he's not here to assess us, to look at each of our records and tell us, well, you can be certain, you can be certain, you not so much, you know. He's not here. Here's why. He commends obedience to us and loving others in us as the result of a true certain, assured, saving faith. Belief in Jesus, the verse says. The obedience and the loving of others is not what secures you. It's not why John can say you're certain you have eternal life. He's saying that actually the loving and obedience comes from the fruit of a true saving faith. So he can tell us that it's certain because your salvation is accomplished by Christ alone. The works and love flow from that salvation. They don't bring it to you. And so he can say then, he can say that it's certain because Jesus has completed the work. Jesus has finished it. Jesus has done it. And when you believe, it becomes your own. You know, so many people say that Jesus made salvation only possible. But if that's the case, you ever ask the question, if Jesus made salvation only possible, what would have happened in history if nobody ever believed? Think about that. If nobody ever believed throughout history, if Jesus just made salvation possible, would his death have been a waste? Would it have been a waste of time because he only made salvation possible? And I think what John is saying, he's having a certainty, and I think the Bible says that there is a certain secured salvation for God's people. He actually paid for sin. 
And he actually paid for your sin if you're believing today. He actually atoned for you, it means. He didn't just make it possible. He secured it. Colossians 2 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our, us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So that if you believe... He has been your atoning sacrifice. Remember 1 John, that word, he's your propitiation. John uses that big biblical word. If you believe that, it's yours. I got a little illustration for us to help us with. I've mentioned it, but I've never actually illustrated it to us. To help us understand this idea of God's wrath, Jesus' atoning, and propitiation, and the security you have as a believer. Imagine this spun would be symbolic of, of Jesus' work for us. It doesn't compare, right? It's a sponge. But bear with me here. Imagine this sponge was symbolic of Jesus' work on the cross for you. And this bucket here is filled with water. Now the bucket, inside that bucket is water that would be considered, for our analogy's sake, God's wrath. Okay? God's wrath and the work of Jesus here. And the wrath that Jesus took on the cross, he, he expiated it. He got rid of it. He took it on. He absorbed it. And when he does that, it makes him favorable to us. Propitiation, favorable. And so it looks like this. Here's Jesus. Here's God's wrath. He's soaking it up. He's holding it in and he's taking it. Holding it in. Taking out God's wrath and taking it on himself. That's this concept of Jesus taking it on. And I would say so. he takes it so far as then takes it away and gets rid of it. It's gone. But here's the thing. For you, it's gone. But it still means that wrath remains. Yours is gone. It's gone. It's taken on. Jesus has absorbed it for you. But this is left, Right? That's left, but yours is here. It's gone. That's why John can say it's certain. That's why he can tell you, you have eternal life now. He soaks it up. How would he then soak up that wrath for you, for literal people, and then say, you know what, I'm going back on that. You know what, I'm taking that back. Or, you know, you know, I thought it counted for her, but it doesn't. Or it counted for him, but it doesn't. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, pursue obedience, love others, and right now you have certainty of eternal life because it's already been purchased for you. Propitiated, soaked up, done away with. Don't doubt it today because of your feelings. How many of you ever doubted it because of a feeling? Feelings come and go. Feelings come and go. Or, or, or doubt it because you know you don't have perfect theology. It's not perfect. Well, I've been taught maybe you thought that you can lose your salvation. You can't. You can't. If you truly have it, it'll never be gone. He's already paid it for you. Don't doubt even because you've disobeyed or you don't love enough. Your certainty is in Jesus who completed it, and it is finished. John 10, Jesus said this. Listen. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater. So take Jesus at his word. Take him at his word. 
No one can snatch you out of his hand as if we're, you know that game jacks? You play the game jacks where you bounce the ball and you, you snatch him up. You probably grew up playing that. As if Jesus, as if we could be snatched out of Jesus' hands like a bunch of jacks. No. Jesus says, they will not. You have eternal life and it's certain. That's our first one. Is that a good news? I hope so. I hope that's good news to you today. Here's our second one. The child of God can have certainty that God hears and answers prayers. God hears and answers prayers. These are truths to build your life on this morning. These are big, solid truths that John is ending his letter with. In verses 14 through 17, they're actually really hard verses. They are not easy to understand. Maybe you heard, when you heard Alice reading them, you're like, what? what are we talking about here? In fact, most scholars say verse 16 is one of the hardest, if not the hardest verse to translate and interpret in all the New Testament. All the New Testament now. Let's take a look. He says in verses 14 to 15, he says this. This is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request we've asked of him. Now, some have read these verses. Ask anything and you'll have it. And other verses on prayer, and they made the, make the case, you know, see, we can ask for anything. You can ask for anything, and there's a guarantee, blank check, that it'll happen. But if that's your view of prayer, you've actually made prayer too small. You've boiled it down to making God more like your magic genie than the sovereign God of the world that he is. If I just say it right, or if I just say it enough times, or tragically, it's even been said, if you just have enough faith, you'll get it. Then God has to do it. That's tragic. There's plenty of examples in the Bible where God chooses not to answer the prayer of very faithful men and women who prayed it many times in pure faith. He owes me this, the thought might be. When prayer is so much more than a to-do list for God, it's so much more than that. A good definition I heard of prayer is this. Prayer is personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. That's a good definition for our first John because we're all talking about knowing. Personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. <clears throat> is it any surprise that in a book on knowing God and fellowship with God that prayer is discussed? It shouldn't be surprised. a surprise. One theologian said this, prayer is that act by which we turn our will to God. Prayer is the very essence of religion. Prayer is the most direct expression of faith. Because, he said, prayerfully turning our thoughts and will to God is the initial step from thought about God to full assurance of God. By the same token, he went on, prayer is the most direct expression of love. It's an offering of highest priority because the first thing we owe God is our thinking and willing. In other words, John is saying a prayerless Christian life is an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp, hot ice, right? A prayerless Christian life, it, it doesn't make sense. John calls us to such a rich and joyful experience and fellowship with God to imagine that you can have a prayerless Christian life, it would be a sham. It's impossible. So prayer is so much more than just bringing a laundry list to God. And prayer, too, is hard because more than anything else in the Bible, it runs on more paradoxes than anything else in the Bible. It's hard. And it's hard to do. We're told that to ask for anything in the Bible, and yet it's always governed by our attitudes, our motives, our obedience, or here, God's will. 
In our letter already, 1 John 3.22, obedience and doing what pleases God gives us confidence to know with certainty that he answers our prayers. And think about Jesus. When he taught us how to pray, the Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount, he governed our prayer life by teaching us right up front, prayers to be about this, thy kingdom come, thy what? Will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And here too, the confidence to pray comes from praying according to God's will. According to his will. I mean, think about this. Would you actually want to pray for something and hope for something in your life that is contrary to God's will? Would you actually want it to come about? A a plan for you that's contrary to his? As if you and I knew better? Would you want the job he doesn't want you to have? Would you want the success that isn't his will for you? Would you want whatever it is, whatever the thing is that he doesn't will for you? I love how Daniel Aiken said it. He said, God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you and I were wise enough to ask for it. I love that. God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you and I were wise enough to want it. But when we pray according to his will, John tells us there is a confidence that he hears us and will answer. God's will is the, is, it's the governing guide here. This isn't to restrict your prayers. There's all kinds of things to pray for. And, and John says, ask anything. But it's really to challenge us more, to challenge our view on ultimate autonomy from God, as if anything I say he has to grant, or a view that somehow he's dependent upon us in prayer. No. But pray boldly, John says, And isn't it just enough, John says here, when you pray, he hears you. Verse 14, when we pray according to his will, he hears us. The fact alone that he hears us is virtually the same as receiving a favorable answer. He hears you. He hears you. It's not a glass ceiling here. It's direct access to him. And yet we don't know the hidden will of God, so ask for anything. And all things, it runs on paradoxes. Do you see that? But a specific prayer situation John brings up here. He says, ask, and in his will he hears. That should be enough. But he gives a specific prayer situation in verse 16 through 17. John calls it to our mind. It's praying for others when they fall into sin. Praying for those in our congregation, our brothers and sisters, when they fall into sin. How many of us, let's think about it. How many of us, our first instinct is to pray for a fellow brother and sister when they fall into sin? Or maybe is it to talk to others or just approach them right away rather than pray for them right away? John says, talk to God first about them and the sin you see. I think these verses, John's talking about two different people here. First, verse 16, I think he's talking about a Christian that's committing a sin that does not lead to death. Meaning a true believer who has sinned a sin for which Christ has paid and which we should pray because restoration and repentance and life can be restored. That's verse 16. The second person, I think, I think it's got to be a non-Christian, somebody that's not following Christ, committing the sin that leads to death. Meaning sin that is habitual lifelong without repentance. I think that's what's going on in these verses. Opposing Jesus and the gospel, 
and the need for forgiveness, which really implies a hardened, willful, vocal turning from Jesus, which only happens to someone who's not following him. The sin that leads to death. And John's command is not commanding us to not pray for that person, to not pray for them in verse 16, but he does seem to be skeptical. It's kind of a strange verse. I said it's really hard to interpret verse 16. He does seem to think it's kind of skeptical and imply it's almost futile to pray for somebody that's that hardened and that turned away from Christ and settled in their sin. Here's the lesson for us. As one theologian said, surely it's an iron hardness not to feel pity when we see souls redeemed by Christ's blood going to ruin, meaning going to sin. Here's, our, here's for us. Pray for others. Pray for forgiveness for ourselves and others. It matters is what John is saying. Jesus said, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Pray for the sin we see in each other's lives. When we see a member of the family, and that's us here, when we see a member of the family falling into sin, our first instinct should be pray, pray. Get on your knees for that person. Beseech God on their behalf. Pray for them to repent and return to Jesus. Because as verse 17 says, we can be certain of it. Look at verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Meaning, Jesus Christ pays for it. Jesus Christ will cover it. So be certain that God hears when we pray and answers and answers our prayers when we pray for one another. Why would we not take advantage of that? Take advantage of it. We've got certainty here from John. That's our second one. But here's our third one. Here's our third one. The child of God can have certainty. They know. They know. We've said that a lot of times in this series. The child of God can have certainty. They know. They know. We've said it a lot of times. By the Spirit and God's Word, we can know a lot, John has said. We can be certain about much. And I've bro broken this last certainty down, and we're going to do three quick certainties under this last one from verses 18 through 20. So here's our first sub-point under that. You can know you're growing. Knowing you are growing. You can know it. This is the last of 13 times that John has mentioned the new birth in this letter. Last of 13. This born again. And by doing it, he gives us confidence that if we are born again, Jesus will complete the work he started in you, in others that know him. The work of overcoming sin. Now, how can we be sure of that and certain that we are protected by Jesus? How can we be certain? Because that's what John's all about in this. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Who protects us? Now, if you're a child sitting here today, oh, kids, look at me. Who protects you? Who protects you? Do you know? Any kids? Who protects you? Yeah, God does. Who's sitting next to you? Parents? You rely on them for a lot, don't you? Yeah, I see somebody pointing back at them. That person there, they protect you, don't they? You feel safe when you're around them. Well, when you wake up with a bad dream in the middle of the night, who, why do you call for your parents? Because you know they protect you. Well, who protects all of us? 
it's not we who protect ourselves, but I think what verse 18 is saying is Jesus protects us. It refers to him there as the one who's been born. He protects us. The whole letter of 1 John has been about this, really getting to this point, that we don't protect ourselves. But the, first, the, John, the letter of 1 John has been this whole pulling together, the co- conglomerate of all the blessings and ministries completed by Jesus on the behalf of you. That's what this letter's about. All these things he's done for us. And here it is, he will keep us, he'll protect us, he'll guard us from the evil one. But how often do you live experientially day to day as if that's not true? Living as if at any moment with worry that you're, you're naked, exposed, and always on the precipice of being swiped off some cliff, pushed over the edge to be dashed upon the rocks. How many of us live as if that's the truth rather than there is one holding and protecting you that cannot fail? Well, ask yourself some questions to, 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 to assess, to test yourself. How do you know if you're living this way? How much worry are you filled with? When you lash out, why do you lash out in anger when things seem to be get out of your control a little bit? Why are you so concerned with the image others have of you? Why do you live as if you're always on the verge of losing the love of a family member or a friend or even God? Why? Because in, the, in our core heart in those moments, we think we are the ones responsible for our security. That's why. That's where that comes from. And we're basing it on something other than Jesus, our security. When he said this in John 17, when I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So live with a certain confidence that you know you know Jesus has your back. To put it in our own language, our terms, Jesus has your back. Nothing can separate from the love of Christ, Scripture says. We know that. He will continue to grow you, protect you, and perfect you. Why? Our second one, under subpoint, because you know you belong. Knowing you belong. <clears throat> Look at verse 19 with me. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know we're from God. You belong. I don't know if in my lifetime, and probably all of yours, even for the oldest person who's here today, have we ever lived through a season where it's so clear on a national, maybe global scale that there are two kingdoms at work in this world. Do you see that? There are two kingdoms at work here. The systems of this world, institutions, cultures, societies, whatever you want to call them, the structures of this world, throw in political parties even of this world. What does John say in verse 19? They lie in the power of the evil one. Now that's not to say that good things can't come out of some of these places and institutions and structures if if godly men and women who inhabit them and work through them, they can. Good things can come, whether it be a business a justice system, a political party, or a culture, good things can come through them, through individual people. But where Jesus isn't acknowledged as the ruling and reigning king, that place is under the dominion of the enemy, John says. It's under the dominion of Satan. 
So don't even come close, for, that's for us then, don't even come close to equating any of these structures, cultures, political parties with the kingdom of Christ. As far as he says, you know, loving Jesus should look like hating your family, he doesn't really mean love your, hate your family, but he means love him so much that that kind of love looks like hate. It should be the same for any other of those things, even our nation on this 4th of July weekend. Our loving of Jesus and his kingdom should make our love of our nation, which we do. If he says it for family, it should make it even look like hate for our nation. I don't mean that now. I don't hear that online, those of you watching online saying, hate your nation. But I mean, we should love the kingdom of God that much more. That's what I mean. I don't mean love it less, family or nation less. I mean love that so much more. That's what I mean. That's what John means when he says, these things lie under the dominion of Satan. But the kingdom of God and you, we belong to him. We belong to him. It's kind of daunting, his words. They are a bit. That this, the, you belong to God, everything else is of the enemy. 2 Corinthians 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But not for the one who belongs to God. Not for you. We live in a wartime world with a wartime mentality, but with a God who will always hold his children in his hand. Do you believe that? That's what John is saying. You belong to him. You're his. He purchased you. Remember the sponge? And finally, here's the last no we can know. Knowing the truth and the true one. I'll speed it up. I know the sun's coming. We're getting hot. <laughs> I see you squinting. Maybe next week we'll flip it. I'll face the sun. You guys can sit with your backs. Knowing the truth of the true one, he ends the letter as he began, talking about Jesus. Look at verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Because we are in him, united to Jesus, we know who he is. Did you catch that there? If anyone ever tells you that the Bible doesn't claim that Jesus is God, just go to 1 John 5.20. He is true God, John writes. It's a claim to his deity. And by being in him, we have that eternal life. We have it. You can know you know it. You can know you know the truth, and the true one is in you, and you're in him. But then what comes to this book is one of the strangest endings in all the New Testament letters, I think. It's really strange. So let's talk about it. Let's conclude with what's up with this ending. Why does he end the letter this way? Little children, keep yourself from what? Idols. Is it out of left field? Did John just remember at the last minute, oh yeah, I want to say something about idolatry, I better get it in there. So little children, keep yourself from idols. Just, just a postscript at the end? No, no, no. His whole overarching goal for us would be to have complete joy in a rich fellowship with Jesus. So now he puts the question before us, this question that God continually wants you to be on your heart. Has someone or something, many times even a good someone or something, captured your heart? Someone or something other than Jesus began to sit on the throne of your heart, grabbed your trust, grabbed your loyalty, grabbed your service, grabbed your fear, grabbed your joy. David Pallison captures the essence of this verse so well when he says, it's a question of bearing on the immediate motivation for your and my behavior thoughts and feelings in the bible's conceptualization of, of 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 idolatry the motivation question is the lordship question who or what rules my behavior 
the Lord or a substitute? Think about that. Who or what's ruling your behavior, your thoughts, your actions, your mind in any situation? The Lord or some substitute? I would go so far as to say every time you sin and I sin, it's a moment of idolatry. Every time. 100%. 100%. Every time, in other words, here's what we'd say. Every time you break 2 through 10 of the Ten Commandments, right, 2 through 10, you've already broken number one. You shall have no other gods before me. It's idolatry. That's a deeper view of what the Bible says sin is. It's not just breaking a rule. It's whenever you've broken 2 through 10, you've already blown past number one, have no other gods before me. Because something in that moment, something in that moment, you're loving something more, enjoying something more, pursuing something more than Jesus, who is true and the true God, John says. That's sin. That's why it's so much of a deeper heart root issue than just breaking some rule. It's idolatry. And when we do it, it makes a mockery of what the Lord's table represents that we're coming to today. That's why John ends with it. Do you want complete joy and deep-rooted fellowship with God? Then tell your idols you are not the true Jesus. Tell your idols you cannot deliver me, only Jesus can. Tell your idols you cannot protect me, only Jesus can. Tell your idols you're not worth living for or dying for, only Jesus is. Tell your idols you won't die for me, only Jesus will. And this is what the Lord's table tells us again and again, over and over again when we come to it. That only Jesus is the true and living God, and only Jesus would die for you. So as we get ready and we wrap up this letter, take a moment or two, contemplate that question, what am I living for in any given moment? When I find myself responding that way, whatever it is habitually for you, the, this, the way you, what you struggle with, why? What is it? What am I pursuing? What am I holding on to? What am I grabbing that God would say, no, 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 you're, you're using that as a substitute for me, for Jesus. Our benediction is just going to be chapter, or verse 20 of chapter 5. Let's listen to it as we go. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life.